Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Over the past 20 years, the U.S. Navy has built a vessel that they've nicknamed the Little Crappy Ship. It barely works. And it's costing us taxpayers about $100 billion what we'd spend on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in 20 years, the agency that regulates nuclear materials in 100 years, or the Peace Corps over the course of 200 years. For one ship, how did this happen? And what does it say about the entire way we arm our nation through the defense industrial complex? I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're, of course, available wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm joined by the outstanding investigative journalist who broke this entire story about the literal combat ship, Joaquin Sapien, who was one of the first reporters hired at our friends at ProPublica. We've had other reporters from ProPublica with us before. You all just do outstanding work. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that one of your recent stories a few years ago won a Deadline Club Award and a Katherine Schneider Journalism Award for Excellence in Reporting on Disability. So you have a wide-ranging purview and you've done really outstanding work here. Joaquin Sapien, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you for having me. That's a very generous introduction. It's my pleasure and it's well-deserved. And you are doing really incredible and critical work exposing things like, hey, we spent $100 billion on a ship that doesn't work. Maybe we shouldn't do it that anymore. Let's start where you start the story. You describe an exercise that happened in July of 2016 that gives a window into the whole problem with the literal combat ship. What happened? Yes, that was an important exercise for the freedom class of littoral combat ships because they had experienced two major breakdowns in the previous few months. And this was viewed as an opportunity to quiet the critics and to rejuvenate this troubled program's reputation. And the idea was that the Freedom was going to go out and find and destroy underwater. So it was going to take a team of just divers out to, to help them do that, and which is a very important mission for 21st century warfare. And unfortunately, there were a number of equipment failures that led up to their departure. There was a lot of, a lot of parts that were not working properly. A lot of it was under repair. This delayed their departure. And But ultimately, they go out and a leak springs in the main machinery room of the ship. And there's dozens of gallons of water spraying on the electrical system. So they have to bring it back. They plug the leak and they bring the ship back. And it takes a few days to land on a procedure that would ultimately allow the ship to carry on the mission using its three other engines. Unfortunately, they do that procedure. And they go back out to sea 
because they're under this enormous amount of pressure to go and meet mission. And they bring the ship back and discover that a this leak had actually led to serious corrosion in the engine and the procedure that was recommended by the Navy's experts didn't work. And they wound up having to replace the engine at a cost of millions in years to repair. And while it was actually able to complete its mission, that accomplishment proved hollow because it destroyed the engine of this very expensive ship. And that turned out to be the third of five major breakdowns on a littoral combat ship over the course of that year from late 2015 to late 2016. And each of them exposed a new problem with the ship and added fresh embarrassment to this program that was meant to propel the Navy into a more technologically advanced future. I thought it was a really smart choice to open your story with that vignette because it really does provide a window into all of the problems that this program has encountered in turning out a vessel that it's just, it, it, it's a little bit like a Rube Goldberg contraption of you, you solve this over here, or like a Charlie Chaplin film. It's yeah, you solve this problem over here. Another problem comes up over here. You manage to have a procedure that allows you to get underway and it creates a leak and there's salt water. And who knew salt water causes machinery to rust and corrode? No kidding. And you, the story, the rest of your story is rich with details of breakdowns, problems, mistakes, errors and, and complete collapse in this vessel and it, you you've just packed all of that in here and it it's just in, like, of a non-stop cascade of problems so let's go back to the start with all of this where did the push for this program to create this vessel come from who started it and why what, what problem was the navy ostensibly trying to solve here so that's a good question it, it came mostly from the mind of Vernon Clark, who was the chief of naval operations at the time. He's the person that really formally got this ship going. And in the story, we described this kind of eureka moment for him where he goes to Denmark and he sees these weapons, this large deck gun being installed on the deck of a ship and within 40 minutes going through operations, getting it ready for use. And at the end, the the U.S. Navy had nothing like that. And so that allowed him to gain some confidence that his idea for a littoral combat ship would work. And so if you'll recall at that time, this is 2001, 2002, we were becoming more and more involved in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the Navy needed a ship that would allow it to be more active in the Persian Gulf, which is pretty shallow. And a lot of our larger warships really can't operate effectively in that area. And what Clark wanted was a ship that could get close to shore, that could do a variety of missions, anti-submarine warfare, mine hunting, mine countermeasures, and anti-surface warfare, fight against other ships, and, and do it all close to shore. These ships would be deployed to the Persian Gulf, to Southeast Asia, to work with smaller allied navies there. The ships would be used to hunt down drug dealers and gun runners in the Caribbean. And the idea was that they were going to be able to go into these shipyards, almost like a NASCAR pit stop, and get their, their equipment quickly changed and outfitted for their next mission. Unfortunately, the, the modularity concepts, one of the things that never really worked out for the ship. But that was the original idea. 
And Clark left pretty early on in the process, but he got the start. He got the program going. He left in 2005, just after the first four ships were, were contracted. Based on your expertise in investigating government waste and boondoggles and in the course of this looking into other failed weapons systems, which you did, and, and you note the F-35 fighter jet more than a decade late, $100 billion over budget. The Navy's newest aircraft carrier, the Gerald R. Ford, cost $13 billion and has yet to prove it can reliably launch planes. That is the job of an aircraft carrier. You would like it to be able to launch planes, and it can't really do that. The list goes on. I want to, while we're talking about this early time frame, I want to ask about whether the concept was flawed at the beginning, whether these problems that we ended up having that you discussed in that opening vignette could have been foreseen. Hey, this is just a bad idea, guys. Let's not do this. Or if the concept was right, because I, at the, in about the same time frame, and we were working on that joint strike fighter, and it has some similarities, right? The idea of the joint strike fighter was, hey, let's have one thing that's modular. Like we can have it do a little bit of this. We can have it do a little bit of that. We don't have to have lots of different weapons that are only for very narrow uses and they're not adaptable. It doesn't sound like a crazy idea to me. And in fact, someone who comes into your story is Ray Mabus under President Obama, who had a real concept for the littoral combat ship. And he seemed to think that it, it was a, a centerpiece to a strategy that he had for the Navy. And he's a big think guy. So that's my question to you. Do you think that the problems that we ended up with here with this program were foreseeable? Or do you think that the original concept was that this makes sense and it just all broke down along the way? Yeah, there's mixed. There's a mix of opinions on that. I spoke to a lot of people, shipbuilding experts and veterans with pretty high rank, former high ranking Navy officials at the time who had pretty serious concerns about this idea. And one of the concerns that they had was this emphasis on speed. This ship was meant to go as fast as 40 knots, which is far faster than most Navy warships. And that was going to really limit the size of the weapons that it could carry is going to limit how far it could go from its gas supply. And the sh it was going to limit how fast it could go for how long without running out of gas. And that was a major concern for a lot of people. And that was the main requirement for the ship was that it'd be able to go fast. So people had a lot of concerns about that in particular. Certainly there was recognition that the Navy needed to expand its presence in shallow waters. And even this idea that the ship be modular and be able to take on different missions didn't sound so far-fetched to people at the time. But as it turned out, that turned out to be more complicated than expected. And certainly the, the emphasis on speed did end up creating this cascading set, set of problems down the line. So there were a lot of people who, who thought this was an unrealistic idea to begin with within the Navy. Most of the ones that I talked to were further down on the chain of command, and their feeling was that, as one of them told me, as a subordinate naval officer, your, go, your boss tells you to go dig a hole, you go dig the hole. And so I think one of the things that I learned in reporting this is that built into the culture of the workplace there is this sort of necessity to salute your leadership and go along with their ideas, even if you have this gnawing sense that it's not gonna work. Let's take a break, we'll be right back. 
Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. Well, you can listen to The Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of The Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things that I thought your story illustrated really well in addition to hand in hand with that idea of it's part of military culture, if the superior officer tells you to dig a hole, you dig a hole, is that this is a generalizable issue that large organizations have where you have leadership at the top whose job by definition is to establish strategic vision. And then you have people with practical know-how further down in the organization. It's it's what Michael Lewis has been pointing out in his podcast series is the sort of the six levels down problem where there's real expertise, real ability to talk about how the rubber meets the road and that's buried inside your organization. And so you have these kinds of problems come up where the ability to foresee issues like we've experienced with the LCS, it exists within the Navy. It just, you couldn't have the organization kind of act on that. It's a problem that one of my grad school mentors laid out for me, and he was a muckety-muck in foreign policy under George H.W. Bush. And he asked all of us as smart Harvard grad students, would you have intervened in the Rwandan genocide? And we said, oh yes, absolutely. As a policy matter, as a high-level policy matter, you say, yes. And then he said, okay, I'm a movie guy. Play the movie. This is the best piece of advice I ever got in policymaking. What are you going to do? It's a country the size of New Jersey. You're going to send in troops? Yeah, we're going to send in troops. Okay, where are they going to go? All the violence is happening in the villages. So you're going to deploy them to all these villages, like units and villages? Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Okay, so walk me through it. Play the movie. What are they going to do? They're going to confiscate weapons? Yes, they're going to confiscate weapons. Okay, what are they going to do? Are they going to knock on doors and look for weapons? Most of the weapons that people are using are also farming implements. They're going to take away people's ability to farm. And we started to stutter. And I got the sense reading through your story that there was a lot of this kind of thing. Another quote that really jumped out to me was one advisor saying the design here was this was supposed to be lightly armored. In other words, it wasn't meant to withstand weapons being shot at it. And you have a quote in here from an advisor saying, do we want one fifth of the future Navy fleet to be a ship that can't take a hit and continue its mission? It's the kind of thing that if you play the movie and spool through, that doesn't sound like a great idea, but it, it, was that the disconnect that, that no one was able to tap the brakes with the visionaries at the time to say, this is never going to really work in practicality? Yeah, there were a lot of concerns about that, about whether or not the idea was going to work at the outset, for sure. And then what happened next, though, I think is also important in that the Navy, there's no question at the time that the Navy needed ships. So if you fast forward from to 2009, when Secretary Ray Mabus gets there, he's facing a, he's dealing with a declining fleet. It's got fewer than 600 ships or less than half the 600 ships that the Navy had during the Cold War. A number of them were facing retirement. And so at that point, this shipbuilding program was already underway. Unfortunately, the Navy realized that the original designs that had been submitted for these ships weren't, wasn't going to cut it. The original designs were based in part on commercial or passenger ferries. And again, the idea was 
the emphasis is on speed and dexterity, and that's what these fairies can offer you. And so the those designs met the requirements that the Navy had stated when the Navy initially greenlit them. And then while they're building the ship, these first ships, there's this realization that, wait a minute, this is going to cause a problem for the sailors who are on board. Questions begun begin to surface around, does this mean that you're deeming LCS sailors expendable? And so they change the design as it's being built. And so this causes costs to skyrocket, and that alarms Congress. And so by the time Mabus gets there, this program is really in trouble because the costs of the ship have skyrocketed. Some of these issues, other issues have started to pop up around survivability. And so he's got to figure out a way to lower the price and eventually get these ships. And so what they wind up doing is having both shipyards that are building the ship at the time compete for a 10 ship contract in an effort to see who could build the best ship for the lowest price. And so they managed to bring down the price, but the price is pretty similar at this point. So there's concern about the loser consuming the over who won, which could stop construction even more. And also both of these ships, both of these designs offer their own benefits. And so the decision that that Mabus and his team ultimately make is let's just award contracts to both shipyards and build both ships and we can lock in this price for the next 10 ships. And so instead of buying 10 at this price, we'll buy 20. But in the long term, we'll save $2.9 billion. And, and this will us get the support that we need in Congress because now you're going to have two delegations fighting for this ship the Wisconsin delegation and Alabama. And and so the plan works. McCain was at that time, had always been dead set against this ship. And he's very concerned that the Navy's not going to pick one that they're going to go to. And he calls for a hearing and he grills these guys. And But it doesn't matter because in a last minute budget bill to keep the government open, Senator Richard Shelby out of Alabama slips in this amendment to buy both ships in both places. And that's a really pivotal decision because they wind up buying 20 of these ships, 10 out of each shipyard, and the ships are very different. They can't exchange parts. They can't exchange sailors. They have to have two different training pipelines. And a lot of people will say that this is one of those turning points for the program that makes it very, both very difficult to operate and very difficult to kill because now you have jobs associated with each variant of the ship in each of these districts, and Congress is not going to let this program go easily. And so one of the things that we learned is that once you create a program of this scale, it can be very difficult to stop. And that's what happened here. I want to talk about that aspect of all of this. You put in a really nice granular detail that was very evocative for me about the fact that when I was a congressional staffer during this time period, I used to take the, the subway, the DC Metro system to work. And when you do that, you get off at Capitol South off the Orange Line. And at the time, there are billboard spaces for people to advertise. It's true of every subway system in the world. Every single one of them was purchased by government contractors. And it was a big picture of a ship. And the tagline was, this is what littoral dominance looks like. And I knew something about this program 
because I worked for a member of Congress who represented the Bath Ironworks in Maine, and they were hoping to get a piece of this program of the shipbuilding there. So our office supported this initiative. But I, I guess I lacked the uh, intellectual curiosity at the time to look up what littoral meant. It means close to shore. So there you go. But it was just, it was stuck in my mind. It was stuck in all of our minds. You could not escape if you were a member of Congress or a staffer, the this interest group, this industry push to get this program going, to spend this money. It really brings to mind the concept coined by Gordon Adams in the early 80s of the Iron Triangle, which is this fucking set of interests among Congress, interest groups, and the federal bureaucracy, in this case, the Department of Defense, where they all support one another and they give electoral support, funding and political support, and special favors to one another. They all benefit one another and the people's interests are locked out. And that's really what it feels like has happened here and what has happened from a 30,000 view writ large with all of these weapons programs and most DOD programs is that they're insulated from the public interest and they're serving the interests of these groups in ways that you just alluded to. The fact that it's just a time-worn strategy. If you want to maintain funding for something, especially like bases, army bases, why is it so hard to close army bases? Why do you have this whole base realignment and closure commission, which doesn't work and fails to close any bases? Because they're sprinkled throughout all of the districts, all of the states in the U.S. No one wants to lose jobs. No one wants to lose that economic input. And it's the same thing with weapons programs. Spread them out among different delegations. You've doubled the number of delegations that are advocating for you in Congress. Is that essentially in reporting out this story? That's my perception. Was that your perception of what's going on in the background here? Certainly the way that the program was set up so that the ships were built in different parts of the country. And then there were parts of the ship that were built in yet other sections of the country who also had representatives that advocated for this program. It wasn't just the ships with the sh- or the districts with the shipyards. It was also districts with you know, factories that were making parts for the LCS that didn't want to see these jobs disappear. And as you said, like that's an issue with almost every weapons system that with the F-35 as well. There's different parts of that plane that are built in different parts of the country. And so there's a lot of people who are invested in its success, even though there's been pretty obvious shortcomings. And one of the sources that I spoke to, I think, put it really well, Lyle Goldstein, who's a former U.S. Naval War College professor and is now at Brown University studying the cost of war. And he said that there's just so much money in this kind of vast ecosystem. And somehow when you get all of these people together, the only thing that they can come up with is more. And so we are And unfortunately, that's just the nature of our system. So I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think that a lot of people are aware of this broadly. People have known since the stories that came out about the overpriced helmets and hammer or toilets and hammers 20 years ago about helmets would have been better. That's at least useful. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah, about Pentagon overspending. And it's like a it's a known problem. What we tried to do is was get, as you said, granular about it to show how this actually works and how the decisions get made in the face of these really obvious shortcomings. But in short, yeah, the answer to your question is yes. And there's absolutely the interest of 
lawmakers wants these once these shipyards are up and running to keep them going is huge and that's not only because they want to protect their the jobs in their districts but yeah certainly there's a lot of campaign contributions and lobbying that goes their way to keep these programs alive and so they they do become very difficult to stop one of the things that you did well in the story is you didn't just make it about this 30,000 foot view and this overarching problem that you're right we, we all know about we've known about for a long time that this is how our DOD operates right it's it's the line from the movie contact it's the first rule of government contracting why buy one of something when you can have two at twice the price and that's essentially the animating idea of our department of defense but you also you also got small scale and you talked a little bit about the experience of the sailors who had to work on this i love to ask investigative journalists on this show about whether they had a, a moment that in the reporting that kind of stopped them in their tracks or where you just went oh my gosh what the hell am i looking at here was that it for you yeah. taking us the sailor's experience now that you mention it there was a, a moment like that in the reporting when we got to when i got to talk to some of the sailors who served on those ships they had described what's called the total shipboard computing environment, which is like basically the communication system on the ship and it allows you to talk to your onshore commands and basically runs everything on the ship from the canteen to the weapon systems to your communications with superiors. And that would periodically shut down on the ship. And so that leaves you basically unable to operate your weapons, unable to talk to your superiors, and unable even to buy a soda from the canteen. And so you're just floating in the ocean in this with the power out. And that, when I heard that from a young, very recently departed lieutenant, I was really struck by just how bad things had turned out and what that must mean and feel like for a sailor to be on one of this on what what is supposed to be considered the cutting edge ship for the navy and it just craps out it's a box floating in the ocean i think is the way you you yeah it. so one of the lieutenant commanders that had led the development of the weapon systems for this program called it that and the reason why is because these weapons systems never really came to fruition the navy ultimately gave up on the anti-submarine module altogether the mine countermeasures, it's just reached initial operating capability, so it's still in pretty early phases of development. And then there's the anti-surface, but that's mostly equipment just to protect the ship. And so it's fairly basic surface warfare equipment that's on it. And, and they gave up on the modularity idea altogether because they didn't factor in how long it was going to take for contractors to fly in from all over the world to swap out these systems. And also they just they just realized that they would not be able to transform the ships and outfit them for a different mission as quickly as they had hoped. And so now they're all semi-permanently installed. So that idea has gone by the wayside too. And so basically what this former lieutenant commander was saying is that without weapons, that's what this ship is. It's just a box floating in the ocean, which is a pretty stunning way to put it. And what he realized was that the Navy just never put as much emphasis on developing the weapon systems as they did in delivering those ships. 
there's a lot of pressure to build and deploy the ships and get them out to the, into the ocean. But there was not as much emphasis on actually making sure that they could do some of the things that they promised that they could do in terms of combat. What we've ended up with here at the end of the day is a ship where it can't take a hit defensively. It doesn't have powerful weapons offensively. So in terms of fighting, it's not particularly great. Also, its computer system doesn't work, so it can't really navigate or do any of the modern stuff that you want to do for the sailors on board the ship. And if you try to run it, it breaks down mechanically and costs lots of money to fix. The concept of modularity ran smack dab in part something that this was a, a wonderful detail that I never would have thought of ran smack dab into the realities of the way we manage things with defense contractors. They consider the technology proprietary, so only their contractors are able to work on fixing and replacing and swapping things, meaning, as you said, you have to fly them all over the world from different sets of contracts. So it that becomes impractical and impossible. In essence, every aspect of this, even if the original concept 20 years ago was good, even if the strategy that Ray Mabus had 10 years ago was good, in, in practice, every piece of this has fallen apart. And if you really thought about it, if you really thought it through, you might have been able to foresee that. One last question for you. You finished doing this really masterful work. Uh, it's a long form read. It's a long read. And you've dived into something that seems to be emblematic of a lot of big weapons programs. Do you have any hope, having reported this out in, in such glorious and evocative detail, that anything is going to change, that there are any lessons that are going to be learned? Or am I going to have you back in 10 years talking about another report on another weapon system with the exact same set of problems? Yeah, we'll see if I have the, the patience and energy to dive this deeply into another complex weapon system ever in my life. But look, we're the Defense Department asked for $842 billion this year. They're likely to get a lot more than that once Congress gets through with the bill. I don't think at any point in these conversations about what the final number is going to be, there's going to be much of a review of past major investments that have failed. There's just not going to be time or interest in that, especially given what's happening with Ukraine and China. There's also a lot of interest brewing around investing more heavily in unmanned technology, which for obvious reasons, you're not exposing real human beings that are operating this equipment to as much risk. A lot of our larger warships are pretty vulnerable to in, in a potential conflict with the Chinese Navy. But I think there's also concern around, do we know that these things are going to work? And one could ask, are we going to be making another investment in, in, in an untested technology that's supposed to take us into the future of warfare? And yeah, I don't know that these, there have been efforts toward defense acquisition reform for decades. This has been tried many times. And unfortunately, programs like this seem to persist. I'm hoping that this story will have a modest impact and it's going to be read by the right people. I think we'd have to be prepared to make a pretty dramatic overall of, of how we envision and execute these kinds of programs in order to avoid a mistake like this in the future. And, and I don't know that there's much appetite for that.
Joaquin Sapien, ProPublica, thanks so much for uh, your incredible work on this very important story and for being with us on Beyond Politics. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.